I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Marianne Miller here to the podcast. She's been in the mental health field for 25 years and has specialized in eating disorders for the last 10 years. She was a full-time academic for 12 years and had a part-time eating disorder practice for much of that time until she left the university and went into private practice full-time in 2018. Dr. Miller loves working with eating disorders, and she takes a non-diet feminist approach that helps people of all genders live empowered, authentic lives. She embraces the health at every size model, and she is LGBTQIAA plus affirming. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining. Hi. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Today. Um, yeah, so sure. we got connected through a, a friend of mine who has worked with you professionally, and I wanted to get her on the podcast to share her story, and she was like, go to the source, <laughs> go, to the, go to the person who has helped me so much, helped her so much with, uh, with her journey. And, um, so I'm just, I'm so excited. Um, could you maybe tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into doing the work that you do now? Okay. I'm, I'll try to make it brief. Cause I, I could like take the whole podcast about <laughs> that. But, um, uh, in terms of how I got into eating disorders, I'll focus on that. So, you know, I was an academic, I was a, a full-time professor of marriage and family therapy. And um, I was doing my side clinical practice. I was focusing a lot on chronic pain and chronic illness. And I myself have a chronic pain history. It's 90% um, resolved, thank goodness. Um, but uh, it really, um, it called me to work with people in that um, field. And so, so I was running a chronic pain support group and working with a lot of people. And I found that a lot of their, a lot of their um, problems, they, they were also demonstrating problems uh, with disordered eating. And so I decided to take an eating disorder class um, at the university where I taught, I audited the class and I was like, okay, I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so I started getting a lot more training and thankfully in San Diego, there's a ton of really awesome trainings at like UCSC's, uh, University of California, San Diego's uh, eating disorder center and at other, you know, eating disorder treatment centers. And, and I just, took off from there. Now, what was going on at the same time is um, I also am recovered from an eating disorder. And for a, a many years of my um, therapeutic work, I was like, I'm not going to work with eating disorders. I've lived it. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to go there. And then I just kept feeling the tug and, um, and decided, all right, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I've found that my lived experience actually was very beneficial for working with people. And so, so 
you know, in 2012, that's when I took the plunge and I really haven't looked back because I just, I loved it. I mean, it just, I have such a passion to walk with people in their recovery journey. And um, I think I do so in a very unique way that's informed a lot by feminism and informed a lot by, you know, uh, by research because of, of my background as a PhD, like academic, and then informed by my personal experience. Now, I don't tend to disclose that to my clients um, because I don't want it to be about me. Um, I want it to be about them. But uh, recently, I've decided to make that more public on social media because I have a message to convey, and it's that eating disorders, you know are treatable and you can recover from them and your life is so much freer and more amazing than you could ever imagine and and I really feel called to to share that so wonderful that, that's it in a nutshell that's that's a good nutshell I feel like there's probably right. more to go into but thank you for that and I love that you felt the pull um, oh, yeah. or, or feeling you know safe to be a little bit more vulnerable about your yes. your background. Yeah. I think people must be so attracted to that to know that there's someone who understands not just professionally but on a deeper level as well. Yes, I would hope so. Mm -hmm. So let's start with this. We talked about this before we recorded. The word fat mm -hmm. is, is being used more and more in mm -hmm. fat spaces, and I would love to right. hear to hear you, you, your thoughts on that word and how it's being used now and, and what people should be aware of when they're talking about fat people and, and what are some, what are ways, you know, cause I think the word obesity now is, is not, is not something that is affirming. And so if you could right. share a little bit about what, um, what language you like to use and why. Yes. That's, that's a good question. Um, so I would not say that I am a fat activist or, um, I mean, I, I, I kind of am. I guess, it's, I guess it, it depends on how you define it because I, I am in a fat body myself. And for me, just showing up to things is activism right. <laughs> and, um, and living my life. Um, and, but I would say that that's like not part of my brand on social media. It's part of what I do. And I, I, um, but I, I'm not known as a fat activist. So I want to have that disclaimer, you know, that there are people in really in the thick of fat, fat activism, you know, fat liberation that know it so much better than I do. Um, so, you know, I'll share with you what I know and also some uh, about my own experience of being someone who's recovered from an eating disorder in a fat body, then also in a fat body. And um, so I first started uh, finding out about the reclaiming of the word fat. It was about like 15 years ago or something like that. I'm trying to point years it now. <laughs> um, and so now I started getting interest in abuse blogs um and I first started looking at the blogs because I was interested in fat fashion right because that's a whole um area that um fat people are very much discriminated against it's getting 
slightly better, but there's such a long way to go. Yeah. And so I was just looking at there, um, you know, about that. And then I was reading these women on the blog, just using fat very liberally. And, and I was like, oh, like, this is kind of cool like, to think about it in a positive way. And, and I think that with, you know, the blowing up of social media, it's really become a lot more known. I wouldn't, I, I'd say there's still a long way to go, but I think there are some huge influencers on Instagram and I'm not on TikTok, but probably on TikTok too, um, that. Uh, you know, like a million plus followers who, uh, you know, very much liberally use the word fat. And then, um, you know, I'm a big advocate of the health at every size movement. Um, and just, I, I think recently they're, they've kind of done an overhaul and it's, it's not them, but it's, that's a concept and a movement, but the Association for Size Diversity and Health um, they really promote Hayes, um, Health at Every Size, and they're kind of doing this overhaul to, to really be more, way more inclusive of people in fat bodies, people in all bodies, people in, um, you know, of all different genders, all different races, and looking at intersectionality and, and stuff like that. And, and I think in one way that's response to what's been going on on social media, you know, is that people people are talking about this and saying, hey, this is important, you know, um, you know, BIPOC individuals, you know, BIPOC queer, you know, LGBTQIA plus whatever um, individuals, you know, they have a very unique voice. And I, I think in the past, um, the, you know, people have been, the people who have been promoting Hayes have typically been the the stereotypical eating disorder professionals, which are thin white women, women, and so, and so, um, the Association for Size Diversity and Health, and I encourage people to check out their website. Um, they're like, okay, this is not okay. <laughs> we need to move move forward in this. And so, so circling back to your question about the reclaiming of the word fat, um, I think it's. I wouldn't say exactly the same, but I think it's a similar process of recla reclaiming the word queer that started happening in like the late 90s and early 2000s. I could be getting my date range wrong, but I, from what I remember, that's when it was happening. I remember there was a show called Queer as Folk, like Queer Eyes Should for the Straight Guy. I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, was part of you know, the movement. And now it's like pe queer, people don't think most most people don't think negatively about it and so I think the reclamation of the word fat is, is as fat as as a descriptor you know it's um stereotypically and you find this even in children's books I mean it's so pervasive and insidious is that the word fat is equal to lazy um smelly um gross uh you know, unmotivated, you know, sitting on the chips in your, or sitting on the chips, sitting on the couch in your underwear, eating chips, you know, not doing anything, yeah. um, which is, is so um, 
humorous to me because of all the fat people I know, and including myself, who are like incredibly driven, you know, incredibly intelligent, you know, movers and shakers. And, um, and so it's a, a reclaiming of the word fat as a descriptor. Um, so, so people can see that it's, it's just a description of our bodies. It's just not, it's not who we are. Mm-hmm. you know it's and it's not it doesn't equal bad you know and i do want to say that when i work with my clients i'm not um i i really try to meet the client where they're at i sometimes sprinkle in fat bodies you know in there and i see how they respond sometimes it's a bit too soon for them to mm-hmm. use that word and so they prefer a larger body <laughs> no one likes plus size okay, okay. <laughs> so the fashion industry just needs to <laughs> get rid of that it's so irritating um but uh, i think that on a you know on a level with my you know what i talk about on social media and what i just conversations that i have with people using fat is um a really important thing for me to not be invisible anymore is to reclaim it and just say that's what have a fat body let's you know address the obvious <laughs> and i don't have to hide it's not a bad thing it just is it's just like a body it's like all you know and it's as summer is coming up that you know people always talk about oh let's get a beach body it's like well, like all bodies are beach bodies if you just put them on the beach <laughs> and so fat, yes not original i got it from someone on social media several years ago um but you know it's just like a, um also the reclaiming of the word fat is saying fat people can live their lives and do these amazing things and put on a bikini and go you know swim in the ocean and lay on the beach and go do whatever they want it's like instead of being marginalized and pushed to the side and live in that impression they can go out and do with that now does it take courage yes does it take a lot of working toward um you know getting to that place yes um it's challenging I had to go through my own journey of being okay calling myself fat um I had to go through my own journey you know being okay you know just going out and living my life regardless of what I'm wearing and not feel like I have to wear all black all the time you know part of that was my recovery journey too so so I get it and um but I, I I'm really happy that it's happening it, I think mainstream needs to you know get with the program <laughs> and pick it up um more but um you know it, there's there's progress that, that's been made awesome what what about the word obesity or obese how how is yeah. that because i that that is i've learned that that is not okay and i think i understand why but i'm sure there are many people who who also don't understand so can you talk more about that yeah, and, and I would say, again, the people who are fat activists and, you know, really known for uh, fat liberation um, positions, they know this better than I do. So um, I think that 
this is my understanding, is the obesity epidemic, and I'm putting this in air quotes, um, you know, that's really, those terms um, have really freaked everyone out. And I remember when I first started reading those blogs, like 15 years ago, they started talking about you know, the, the obesity epidemic, that's really when everyone was talking about the childhood obesity epidemic. And, um, and what accompanies the word obese, and I think it, like of it, especially in the medical system, is so much discrimination. So you slap obese, that label on anyone, and you have it as a diagnosis, like in, in your medical file. And um, not only can that hurt you in, in terms of in health insurance and coverage and all of that stuff, there are huge assumptions that um, the medical system takes to, um, you know, when someone has that obese um, title slapped on them. And a lot of that is based on the BMI which many researchers have put, proven to be like completely crap. <laughs> and, um, and so, um, and, you know, we can go into that later if you want, but if, if we don't have time, just Google that. Google BMI is not a true indicator of health and you'll find a lot of stuff on that. So, and, and really the BMI is for insurance companies you know, uh, not only medical insurance, but like um, life insurance companies, you know, and the purpose of those companies is exclusion. They want to exclude as many people because they want to save money. They want, they want to get as much money they can and not have to pay for as many things. So there's this huge financial push. And then also there's been a, such an incredible um, uh discrimination culture, discriminatory culture in the medical system, yeah. uh, you know, against fat people. And, um, and part of it is their training. And, and I'm talking about all levels of medical professionals. And, um, and one of the huge issues is that, uh, is that no matter what health issues someone could come into uh, an appointment with it's like oh it's because you're obese oh it's because you know it's that you know I had a, a, a fat friend who told me I'm really tired of going in for a sinus infection and have people you know put me on a diet or test my blood sugar levels <laughs> and I remember I mean this was back in like oh five um when I had back surgeries and that's what was uh, related to my chronic pain history, they kept testing me repeatedly for diabetes during the day. Like I, I called them the vampires. They would come in and prick my fingers and test my blood for uh, for um, blood sugar issues because they assumed because I was in a fat body that I was uh, I had diabetes. Don't have diabetes. There are plenty of people who have been privileged who have diabetes. People. And so it's just, it's just the assumptions that come with the obesity and, and a lot of it is medical and it's just a lot of it is loaded with 
huge discrimination that um, that translates to lack of care. And I can't not even tell you how many of my uh, you know clients and other people that I know who are fat who just will not go to the doctor because of you know discrimination. And it is so real. It is so real, and it's painful. And and I mean I've I've dealt with that myself. You know of even when I've told the physician repeatedly, I don't want to talk about weight and body image, you know, weight, body stuff, whatever. And they're, I've said it like three times and then they keep bringing it up. And so I fired the doctor. Yeah. And so, and so, I mean, it's just um, so insidious and pervasive and, and, and it comes from everywhere um, in the medical system. And so, moving away from that term is like is and and again I, I think other people may have a different take on it in my mind it's like let's see that that weight is not an indicator of overall health okay weight is not an indicator of overall health and again lots of research on that the association for size diversity and health and their website they have a ton of research on that um, and, you know, there's so many other components that people need to look at. As soon as someone has that obesity label slapped on them, um, it, then, then it's like, well, it's all because of that. And then with the COVID epidemic, oh my gosh, people were like going crazy. Like, oh, if you're obese, you have, you're at more at risk, more at risk, more at risk. And, and then it's like, I, we started looking at it, or people started looking at it. And they're like, why are they saying this is more at risk? Well, it's, it's because the, the ventilators, and this was kind of, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, the ventilators weren't working with them when they would go to the hospital. Well, the reason that the ventilators weren't working is that they were not created for fat bodies. They were created for people within bodies. And so the problem wasn't the, weren't, wasn't the people and their fat bodies, the problem was the ventilators. If they created ventilators for people who were in fat bodies that works with them, then they would have less of a mortality rate again earlier in the pandemic, pre-vaccine. So, um, so again, it's like that's you know people are looking at the obesity as the reason instead of looking at what what's the real problem. And the problem is uh, uh, is these very um, oppressive fat phobic systems. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like even taking that further, I hadn't thought about the ventilator part that that is makes a lot of sense, but also this is not something I, this is the stuff I've read, but like this, a, like you mentioned the avoidance of going to see a doctor. So maybe going to seek care later. And then also the stress of being out in the world and being on the receiving end of fat phobia and the stress and inflammation that that causes could also explain it's not like the inherentness in, in, in the being fat, but like the physiologic response to living in a world that treats fat people the way it does. Um, I've, I've heard that as well. Do you have thoughts about that? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether I, I mean, I, I could maybe see that. Um, it, it is more stressful. It, it to be in a fat body and then it is to be in a thin 
body. Um, I mean, that's just the reality of our world. It's, it's just, it's just more stressful. I, I have not read anything that has tied that to more inflammation. Um, uh, I think I, I've just, you know, it's just, it's just another stressor kind of on the pile up of stressors that yeah. people can experience. You know, I'm working with people with eating disorders and believe me, like you would have people of all different body sizes and you would never be able to guess um, what a, someone's body image is based. If you lined up a hundred of my clients, you would never be able to guess what um, their body image is. You know, I have fat people who are very comfortable in their bodies. I have you know, people who have skin privilege who absolutely loathe how they look. Mm. So it's, so, so if we think about it from, you know, I'm, I'm not a physiological, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, I, you know, I am a PhD. And so my areas of expertise are the psychological, um, emotional and relational health of my clients. And so you know, for people with eating disorders, they, they may be, you know, objectively in thin bodies, but hate themselves um, and hate the way they look. And, you know, if that, if we link that to inflammation too. So, yeah, so I, I think it's important not to overgeneralize that um, because there are many people in fat bodies who are like, oh yeah, here's, here's what I look like. Let's hang it out. You know, this yeah. is who I am, you know, People who don't like it, they can, you know, go screw themselves. Or I don't know. Can I cuss on this? <laughs> <laughs> There's no problem with that. We don't. It, <laughs> we don't need to like use it like all the time. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> For themselves is fine. Um, um, I don't think there's like a lot of young children listening to this to this okay. podcast. Um, thank you for clarifying that. That you know, I I. Sure. There's so, there's so much nuance to all of this. Um, I love talking about the patriarchy and every, oh, yeah. <laughs> who knows me recently, <laughs> who's a part of my life in the past, you know, certainly a few years uh, has heard me talk about the patriarchy. And I've recently identified it as like the negative voice in my head. Like that is the name of it. Is right. the it's like responsible for everything. I'd love to talk to you about or to hear your thoughts on the patriarchy and how it plays into what a body should or shouldn't look like and and what what one does or does not have uh the the right or the privilege to tell other people about what their body should look like or or kind of legislating legally or de facto about what what normal is um and and how that ties into the patriarchy um okay can you repeat that one more time i don't think i got that yeah, so I just like the patriarchy, how it defines what normal is and uh, it makes okay. people think they have the right to tell fat body people what they should or shouldn't look like, like how it gives people this mm -hmm. like um, implicit permission to, leg to, to decide what other people should or shouldn't be doing with their bodies and how that plays in. Um, the paternalism aspect of it, I guess, but. Um... Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, if we break this down from a feminist perspective and look at the objectification of women, so, um, you know, as women, as 
objects uh, and seen as their purpose was to like, uh, the purpose is to please men and be an object that pleases men. Um, you know, so women, so there has been, you know, centuries of women feeling um, pressured to look a certain way, you know, and again, this can vary by culture um, based on, and that's based on the perception of what men want them to look like. And so um, I think that uh, it's very, very important to, to talk about not only the patriarchy, but um, the inherent racism in um, inherent racism in uh, fat phobia. So um, Dr. Sabrina Strings, who is a um, professor at University of California, um, Irvine, uh, she wrote a book called Fearing the, the, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. So her perspective, and I definitely agree with her, is that, you know, prior to the onset of slavery in terms of slavery, you know, from people from African nations and slavery as a trade, um, that there was more um, acceptance of women with uh, curves and rounder bodies. If you think of like the Rubin paintings, you know, the Rubenesque woman, of, you know, and, and a lot of times that that was seen as, as you know, wealthy people, you know, they have, they are, have food to eat. And so their bodies are going to be curvier. So that was kind of the ideal. And so on the, with the onset of slavery, you know, you have a different body type that was introduced to Europe and the Americas. And, you know, uh, you know, that body type was rounder in, in overgeneralization. They had to be very strong, you know, and, and to be able to do the labor that they worked. And so the aristocracy at the time, they really wanted to distinguish um, the way that they, they were compared to the other, which is slaves. And not only slaves, but also I think laborers in general, but especially slaves. And so that's when you saw um, the, the thin white ideal, you know, that not with not so many curves um, really come into to fruition and be more prevalent. And so, um, so it's like, we are different and better than slaves who are not even seen as people. Um, and then again, but during that time, also women are, were still seen um, as, as objects, as someone that, you know, marriage was seen as a transaction. And, and so again, it all just stems from um, a very patriarchal, you know, male dominated um, uh, society. And so I think that um, we can't talk about patriarchy uh, without talking about racism. Yeah. And so, and how that 
um, really started fat phobia. And so I, I think that um, uh, it also, we can't talk about the patriarchy without talking about intersectionality, you know, which is you have, you know, the more uh, categories of oppressed and marginalized groups that people fit into, the more the oppression and marginalization is, is compounded for them. And so, um, so, you know, with me, I'm white, so I have white privilege. I, I'm a fat white person, so um, I don't have thin privilege. White, so I have white privilege. So there are things that I don't have to worry about, you know, that people, BIPOC people have to worry about or face on a daily daily basis. Now I'm I'm a woman, I'm a cis straight woman, and so I have cis straight privilege, um, and I'm a woman, and so I have to deal with sexism and. Um, uh, I mean, and I, I have, I had at the university, you know, and in other times of my life, very much in my face, you know, sexism. And, and so, um, so I think that, um, that one way of oppressing women is to get them to obsess about what they look like. And so, because if they're doing that, then they're not like doing other amazing things like kicking butt and taking names and, you know, and doing all of these, um, you know, amazing things and activism, like being, like embracing their power, all those stuff. So, so it's a very, um, you know, using the word fat, fat phobia, um, you know, getting women to over, uh, overvalue, um, not overvalue, that's not the right word, but like just hyper-focus on their appearance is is not helpful. Now, I'm all about fashion, makeup, hair, like I, I love all that stuff and it's it's not all of me. That's just, a, it's, it's a, an expression of creativity for me. And, um, and you know, I, I, I am, it's also part of my visibility as a fat woman. Like I want to be out there spending my power, you know, walking around, you know, and being a badass. And so um, I think that um, it's really important to see how the patriarchy can be incredibly um, objectifying of women, also the racist component and, um, how women are um, have to fight against diet culture, and like that's a whole nother conversation, <laughs> um, which also keeps them in this box of like, well, if you're focused so much on dieting and looking a certain way, then you're not going to embrace the power that you have and just really, you know, take over the world. <laughs> I'm very, I'm being very hyper. Hyperbole. I'm using a lot of hyperbole, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and but I'm doing this in a way to to say like like this is these are the big dreams that we want to have as women, and we want you know that really can dismantle the patriarchy someday.
Yeah. I love it. I love how you explained it too. Um, um, and, and bringing in racism and bringing in intersectionality as well. Um, and the history of, of compared to slavery, uh, of course, is or compared not slavery, but to enslaved people, um, is is not something that I feel like I would know without knowing to look for that or without learning that from someone. Um, yes, but fearing the black body, uh, I recommend highly recommend that book by Dr. Sabrina Strings. So hear it, hear it from her instead of hearing it from me, you know, as a white woman, we want to hear it from her. Absolutely. So, as a black, as a black woman. Mm -hmm. that, that link will be in the show notes. Um, awesome. As, as will the website for the, um, the association for uh, size diversity and health um, and anything else that comes up as we're, as I always make little, okay. notes, a little square next to it. So I make sure to include it. So thank you for that. Um, can you talk a little bit about diet culture and because yep. I mean, one of the things that blew my mind most with, with my friend who has worked with you was when she, she said something and I'm paraphrasing and she may have been paraphrasing, but she was like, part of the treatment was like, eat all day, like eat whatever you want, like keep yourself, you know, don't go more than four hours without eating. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. But when do I get to start losing weight? Yeah. And I believe it was you that said like, as soon as you stop wanting to find out about when you get to lose weight. Like the whole point is yeah. to get yourself to a point where you're not like still yeah. trying to get to some other body size in order to find yes. what you think you're looking for. And that just blew my mind into a million pieces. So I'd love to hear more about that and and how mm -hmm. you how do you get people out of that mindset? Because it's, it's uh, completely like, um, I wanna say paralyzing, but just like, that that being caught in diet culture is it's just oppressive. It's, oppressive. it's oppressive. It's limiting. Yeah, that's the word I want. Oppressive. Um, so can yeah. you can you talk a little bit more about that? So um, diet culture is an all-encompassing term uh, that includes the you know multi-billion-dollar diet, health, and wellness industry, and also the messages that society. Uh, convey that um, something's wrong with you. <laughs> something's wrong with your body and you need to change it. And, and really this can be regardless of what a person's actual body size is. It's just the, the message and it, it really stems from, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's about money and I'll explain that in a second. Um, the message is that um, as people, you shouldn't trust your own bodies. You should um, trust our program. You should trust our diets. You should trust our, the books that we write. You should trust what we say as an influencer. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust your own hunger. You can't trust your own hunger and fullness cues. You, you need to, um, you know, have a external motivator and, and completely disregard what your body is telling you. And so it creates this disconnect, you know, and people get caught up in the sense of, I want to, um, I, you know, my body is wrong. My body is bad. There's, 
like a lot of shame that happens with a lot of embarrassment, guilt, and, um, and, you know, and the whole um, driving force behind it is um, financial, because you have these, if you think about business models, um, and you think about a business like Weight Watchers, they make the bulk of their money on repeat customers, because that's a very good business model. You want long-term customers. You want people to keep signing up for your program. You want people to keep buying your products, um, because if you have an LTV, lifetime value um, of the customer, um, you know, then you want them to, to be with you for the length of their life. So it's a total setup, right? Because you don't want people to succeed, <laughs> you know, but you, you don't want people to succeed. You want people still to struggle and still need you. And so that's not only with Weight Watchers, that's with all of the other big, you know, diet culture or diet companies, but also, you know, again, influencers, um, you know, you don't want people to succeed because you want them to keep following you and liking your posts and having a, um, uh, and so, you know, you have, your numbers are up and you get paid more in advertising revenue. It's so financially driven. So yeah. it's in these companies, these influencers, these individuals' best interests for you not to trust yourself. Because if you trust yourself, you don't need them. You know, you don't pay money to them. And so that approach is just, is, is, is very much, um, you know, it's insidious. It's like a, it's like a virus. It's, it's, it's just bled into all parts of society. And, and so we have, I mean, I work with teens, you know, we have people sometimes in elementary school, like kids, like being put on diet. And sometimes they're put on diet by their freaking pediatricians by, because, um, pediatricians, uh, you know, are bought into diet culture and they are so, you know, discriminating when it comes to weight. Uh, and instead of teaching kids to trust their bodies, trust their sense of hunger and fullness cues. So, so with many of my clients, um, you know, I, they come in and say they struggle with um, binge eating. So a lot of times people don't understand that when people struggle with binge eating, there's almost always this restrictive component to it. So it's like a pendulum. So they, they, they binge and then they restrict. So they binge and then they restrict. And, and, or they binge and then they get back on the diet. Now that can happen, like that can happen all in one day. That can happen in a week. That can sometimes have happen over periods of months. Uh, but there's this restrict binge cycle. And so if you restrict long enough, you know, both there's psychological deprivation and also there's physiological deprivation. So these big categories of food that people are unable to um, eat during the restrictive or dieting phase, they start becoming obsessed with them and there's research to back that up. Um, and so it, it's kind of like when, I, if I were to tell you, um, so don't think about a pink elephant. I really don't want you to think about a pink elephant. And we're going to go 
Like every day you need to make sure and not think about a pink elephant and you need to log on your phone um, how much you're not thinking about a pink elephant. <laughs> well, I mean, you're going to be thinking about a pink elephant, whereas before you were like, you wouldn't think about a pink elephant, you know? And so it, it's a, it's, it sets people up and, and, you know, there's been a lot of research conducted on diets and they really don't work. And that's because of, of this psychological deprivation and then also a physiological deprivation as well. And so what we, you know, what I typically work in conjunction with an eating disorder dietitian. And what we do is we help people kind of reset not only kind of their brain and their perspectives on food, but reset their physiology and their you know, um, their digestive, you know, or, you know, gastrointestinal systems, because their gastrointestinal systems have been going from this very restrictive eating to the, you know, free for all, and then there's no middle ground, right? And so, so what we do, and um, Dr. Chris Fairburn out of Oxford University, he's conducted a lot of research on binge eating. And what he has done is, he, when when people struggle with binge eating, he has them list, um, you know, to people's fear foods, foods that people might think are quote unhealthy or bad or you know evil or you know there's a lot of stigma around that like carbs are bad or you know carbs are evil or whatever. And so Alfredo is like, what's coming to my head. It was like the thing that girls just don't eat is stuff like the creamy pasta was like, Oh yeah. Right. No, it's like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotta have the marinara sauce instead. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so he said, okay, every time you, you know, go to a grocery store, I want you to go and buy, you know, one of the things on your fair foods list. And so, okay, they go and buy it and they go home, eat it. He said, okay, the next time you go, um, I want you to buy that thing. And then the second thing on the list. And so the goal is to move from a scarcity mindset of where I can't have these foods in my fair food list to an abundance mindset. From a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. Because psychologically, when you have an abundance mindset with this, um, acknowledgement that uh, food, I you know, all food is available, kind of an all food fits model. A lot of people in the eating disorder professional world use that. Is is that like all of this food is available to me, and so I can just learn over time to you know use my hunger and fullness cues to um, to trust what I need and what I don't need now. You know, researchers have shown that with um, people with eating disorders, that eating disorders are brain disorders, and there are certain areas of the brain that aren't functioning as efficiently and as effectively when it comes compared to people without eating disorders. So with people with eating disorders, especially, I'm I'm just going to talk about binge eating, Um, you know, some of the areas of the brain have to do with um, hunger and fullness cues. You know, they're, they're, you know, the, their hunger and fullness cues because of chronic dieting and restricting and the restrict binge cycle, their hunger and fullness cues have gotten all um, dysregulated. And so a lot of my clients are like, I don't even know when I feel hungry and I don't know when I feel full. 
So in order to kind of reboot that whole thing um, and help teach them, we need to have a sense of, create the sense of abundance and let them choose. And, and then over time, what happens, and it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a process and there's a lot of emotional and psychological things to work through in that. You know, they need to be able to really learn how to trust themselves and, um, and trust with what their body is, um, you know, longing for. And, and that's really, uh, a lot of that also comes from Intuitive Eating, which is a book that came out um, several years ago, but written by two dietitians in Orange County, California, who, um, uh, and, and encourage people look that up you can maybe put that link as well um is, is that intuitive eating yeah yeah evelyn Treble is the first author and or is one of the authors and um so intuitive eating and um, that there's like an intuitive eating workbook and it's really about learning how to trust your own uh, trust yourself and and if you think if you link this back into the patriarchy what does the patriarchy want from for women or people who identify as women or any sort of oppressed or marginalized group that aren't white men they don't they want they don't want you to trust yourself they don't want you to trust yourself you know they don't want you to lean into your own power so this is a very empowering process and this is one reason i feel so convicted to help people with this so diet culture is teaches people not to trust themselves so they'll give them a bunch of money, you know, these diet companies, influencers, whatever, and um, which is the very, which is incredibly patriarchal, you know, even if the diet industry or these diet companies are run by women, it's getting women not to trust themselves. I mean, which is so, you know, uh, opposite of what women and girls need. Yeah. We need to learn how to trust ourselves so we can lean into our power. Um, I love everything you said. We're running towards the end of our time. I want to, before we get into like how people can find you, and I've heard people kind of misconstrue intuitive eating as like a diet, like intuitive eating oh. is something people do in order to like, I just eat when I'm hungry, but it's like, so I can stay oh. kind of thing. Is that something right. experienced and, and how would you delineate the way that it's used in, in this book and in, in how you're referring to it? That's a really good question. So, um, uh, so intuitive eating is, it's not a diet. It's, I would say, um, it's an approach to food and eating that it's all about learning how to trust yourself. And, um, I think the word intuitive eating has been co-opted mm. by diet culture. Um, and so people use that, oh, intuitive eating, you know, so, but, you know, and, and people, um, you know, with all types of eating disorders, in, in the beginning, I am not working with them on getting to intuitive eating place because the hunger and fullness cues, um, the area of that area of their brain is not working. And so they, they can't eat intuitively in the beginning. They need to eat mechanically. So that's where we set up a, you know, um, it's a rule of threes. Um, so it's it's um, three times a day, uh, three meals, three snacks typically, 
um, every three to four hours. Three meals, three snacks every three, four hours. And if you want to go nuts, you, you can have three components of every time you eat, like a protein, a carb, and a fat. And so that will help you become more satiated. And um, and again, um, you know, I this the purpose of this podcast is not for me to give people directions in terms of what they ought to do. This, it, you know, the uh, eating disorders are very subtle and nuanced. And if you think you do have one, I recommend that you contact an eating disorder therapist, eating disorder dietitian to get assessed because that is not going to work for everyone. So I just want to have that disclaimer out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did I answer your question? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just basically what it's really about is tuning into your body and then it's been co-opted as a way to lose weight. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> when it's not about like the focus, I'm like, okay, we're not even focusing on weight. We're focusing on escaping from psychological deprivation and physiological deprivation. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Um, Cause I've used that term and people, when I'm talking about my friend's journey and kind of what I'm learning about and, and I don't think people in regular mainstream society recognize that as something for what it actually is. I think they've, they oh, are yeah, for sure. the version of it. Um, all right. Well, there's like so much more, but we are going to end. Um, please tell people how they can get in touch with you and you have an awesome course that you're running. So if you wouldn't mind sharing yeah. that as well. Sure. Sure. So um, they can check me out on my website. It's drmariannemiller.com um, and on Instagram it's at drmariannemiller Facebook at drmariannemiller um, and I I have this class it's called the freedom from binge eating class and um, by the time this podcast airs I will be in the midst of uh, one so the next one is going to begin um, July 12th and it's a four-week class, and it's virtual, and it's a class. It's not therapy, and it's very educational, and I'm going to be talking some about my own story. I'm going to be talking a lot about um, diet culture. I'm going to teach people about the binge restrict cycle, and then because there's this whole emotional component, uh, you know, with shame and stuff, um, and then also, on the third week, I have um, an eating disorder dietitian, Amy Ornelis, um, who uh, really specializes in binge eating. She comes on the third week to talk about like the science behind um, uh, binge eating and, and how to, to work with that. And then I also teach people how to manage their urges, binge eating urges, and manage um, they're, uh, the emotions that really drive these urges. So that sounds amazing. Um, yeah. And it's all virtual through zoom. So, okay. And that's on your website. They can find that. Yeah. The freedom from binge eating class. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marianne Miller. This has been just so opening and fascinating and, um, thank you for doing what you do and, and, and bringing uh -huh. this message. I appreciate um, that. it's, it's so important. And I think just like, there's so many levels of so many levels, it's so and, complex and nuanced. Yeah. yeah. Like in all bodies, you know, it's just so interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Awesome. (laughs) Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.